following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Our scripture is Psalm 22. If you'll turn there. Psalm 22, we've been considering these last four weeks the, some of the critical key messianic psalms. The psalms are full of prophecy and pointing ahead to Jesus Christ. And this evening we're considering Psalm 22. Here as I read God's infallible word. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a postured, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death." For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, 
and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Amen and amen. Certainly, it might be said that it's somewhat unusual to consider Psalm 22 at this time of year. But really, when you think of it, this psalm is entirely appropriate because the events surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ point to the way of the cross for our Savior. Think of it. He was born in lowliness and not in a king's palace. He was visited by shepherds who we know, we're told, were outcasts in society at the time. And as we heard this morning from Dr. Rogers, uh, very soon after, he was persecuted by Herod, which foreshadows what Jesus Christ would later face. From his very birth, the cross awaited the Savior of the world. And so, it's appropriate in that sense. But there is another sense in which Psalm 22 is fitting for us to consider at Christmas because Christmas tells us of the coming of Emmanuel, God with us. We know that's what that means. And along those same lines, Psalm 22 tells us and paints a picture for us of the awful extent to which Christ fully identified with us in paying the price, the terrible price for our sins. We want to consider this psalm in three different parts. One, the first half of the psalm, really the major part of our study, verses 121, is that the psalm tells us and shows us the humanity of Christ revealed in his suffering on the cross. Here is the God-man, fully god fully man, Jesus Christ. Theologians, Bible scholars wrestled with that. The early church worked that out as they went through the various councils of the church that here Jesus Christ had both the nature of God and the nature of God fully in himself. And this psalm reminds us that the Word became flesh. He shared our humanity fully And as Hebrews speaks of it, he was made perfect through suffering. I think there are ways in which what we read in Psalm 22 is an in-depth description of the summaries we read in places like Hebrews chapter 2 where it says in verse 10, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, that's Christ, in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. In other words, God the Father made Jesus Christ perfect through suffering. Not that he had any sin, but his obedience as our substitute, as the great captain of our faith, as the one who bore the penalty of sin. He was made perfect through suffering. And then later on in verse 14, it says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's you and me, He, Jesus Christ himself, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong 
slavery. And then in verse 17, it sums it up and says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest, and to make propitiation for our sins. The Gospels largely tell the story of the cross from the perspective of those looking on. We see Jesus Christ put on the cross. But this psalm, in a sense, tells us of the cross from the point of view of Jesus himself. Look with me at the picture we have of the sufferings of Christ in the first half of this psalm. And then there's a clear break after verse 21. But first we see in verses 1 and 2 a cry of despair. And isn't verse 1, the beginning of verse 1, a familiar part to us? Because this is the psalm Jesus quoted from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus fulfilled this psalm and he still considered his Father his God. He never renounced that testimony of faith. But he did cry out, why have you forsaken me? And we've preached whole sermons on that verse. But clearly it assumes that God had forsaken him in some sense on the cross. Not ultimately, we know, because the resurrection was yet to come. But on the cross for Jesus, all was darkness. He maintained his faith and his resignation to the will of God Yet he did not stop crying out to his God. Yet he saw no sign of God's favor. And he feels nothing, apparently, of God's presence with him. And yet he still cries out, my God. Already, we see at the beginning of the psalm how deeply Jesus Christ and completely he identified with us in our brokenness and sin. This is the extent to which the Savior had to go. The baby born in Bethlehem. Maybe some of you have children or grandchildren who are in infancy still. And whenever I hold one of my infant grandsons these days, I just think of that, in a sense, that that beauty and the unspoiledness of a child at that age. And they have yet to understand this world and this life. And it's just so much fun to see them responding to things like seeing the birds at the bird feeder outside or, or hearing music and they start to learn how to, you know, shake to the beat somewhat. Here we see Jesus, that baby born now fully in manhood, finally at the point of bearing sins. And we think, how far did Jesus have to go to identify with us? He had to go completely to death and taking the wrath of God for our sins on the cross. And so we can say, have we ever felt forsaken by God? We've never been fully forsaken by God because, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, Jesus was forsaken, that we might not be forsaken by God. And then after this desolate cry we see in verses 3 to 5, Jesus appealed to the covenant of God. I'm not going to go into it in depth, but here Jesus takes a typical Old Testament pattern of appealing to God that we see in many psalms. And then he cries out, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. Many times the psalms take this way and they they say, our God, you've been faithful in the past. We've seen your faithfulness. Please be merciful again 
to us. There's a call to mind of God's holiness and and an appeal to God based on his faithfulness to his covenant promises to his people. Jesus knew God's covenantal faithfulness, but on the cross, there was a sense in which he could no longer feel it anymore at that point. Instead, Jesus felt the scorn and derision of the people set against him, the crowds, the agonies of physical crucifixion on the cross, and the wrath of God against the sins of mankind. And then in verses 6 through 8, it's as if despair returns to some extent. And he says, but I am a worm and not, of man, and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by people. And he goes on to speak about how they mock him and wag their heads at him. And, and it's interesting, they even mock him for his faith in God. I think of this as, as if we would be in a surf at the ocean when the waves are too big. Have you ever had that experience? When I was a senior in high school, I went to Rehoboth Beach with a friend, and we were out there. It must have been a surf that was way too dangerous to be in. But I remember, and I was pretty strong, senior in high school, you know, 18 years old. I remember just being crushed by a wave. This felt like a 10-foot wave and just crushed, ground my face in the sand. I get up coughing and sputtering only to have another wave crash over me. I hope you don't ever have that experience, especially you kids. An 18-year-old maybe can take it. Of course, there are lots of surfs that are way too strong and would carry any of us out to sea. But the temper of this psalm just seems to show the waves of desolation sweeping over Jesus Christ, in a sense, washing over him. He's almost as if he's knocked down in every attempt he makes to find and to put his trust in God again There's this forsakenness that comes to him. On one hand, finding strength in his God and then being crushed by the wrath of God on sin and the alienation that he felt. It reminds us of of Isaiah 53, just to read a verse there. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You know, I haven't experienced a lot of hostility I don't know if any of you have experienced hostility from others around you. It's just not something that I ever want or like. And and I just think of what it must be like for people in the media or people in culture to face uh, a public hostility of some kind. Uh, Think of the fact that nothing like that, nothing we ever see like that compares to the absolute hostility Jesus Christ, the Son of God, experienced from sinful man. No one stood with him. He was betrayed. He was abandoned by those who were nearest to him. And he had a great sense of this. All who see me mock me. Let him, let God deliver him to be mocked for his very faith. Jesus feels utterly contemptible. And the crowd essentially agrees with him. And as it were, he is disowned by the very covenant people of God. I've been a small part of a number of presbytery actions. Actually, I was thinking about it this week. There have been three or four over the years when a pastor has fallen into public scandal of some kind, and I've been involved in the committee seeking to help him through that, seeking to restore in some way, seeking to help him not fall utterly into sin. It's just a very shameful thing 
to be involved in that and to think of that, but it happens. To think about Jesus Christ, the sinless Savior, being put in that position, in a sense here, being so disowned by the people of God and by being so mocked and ridiculed and scorned, that's how deep he identified with you and with me, with the kind of humiliation and scorn we should receive for our sin. And then in verse 9, Jesus moves to appeal to his past. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. It's again as if Jesus recovers to some degree from the onslaught of these waves overcoming him. And this time, he seeks to find consolation in God's dealings with him in his past and how God has always protected him. Maybe here he's thinking of his infancy and the stories his parents had told him of the warning to Joseph and the flight to Egypt to escape Herod's wrath. Or again, the warning to avoid Archelaus and to return by another route to Nazareth. Or maybe Jesus was thinking about God's sustaining power and protection in the wilderness when he was first commissioned for his public ministry and when he had faithfully endured Satan's temptation and angels came and ministered to him in his weakness from fasting all that time. Or possibly he's referring to all the times the Father dramatically and providentially protected him from stoning and being put to death by hostile crowds and the religious leaders of the time who were all opposed to him. Jesus had known that kind of divine protection and provision again and again. And so I think it's true that we can't imagine the mental and emotional and spiritual agonies of Jesus Christ on the cross. But we see him perfectly fighting the fight of faith, still committing himself to his Father's protection and care, even though this time it would be through enduring death itself. And then finally, verses 11 to 21, which concludes the first half of the psalm, There is this repeated prayer for deliverance. He pleads with his God to rescue him as he describes the depths of his suffering. And it's in this part that we see the most vivid description and prophecy about what crucifixion was like. But in verse 11, he says, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. So he prays for the presence of God as if he could endure all else if his father's presence was there with him. He could endure the torture, the mocking crowds, the pain and agony. And then he describes, I'm not going to read all of it, he describes metaphorically. Here we have one of the most vivid descriptions of what crucifixion was. And, and yet he repeats this refrain of crying out, verse 19, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Overwhelmed by suffering, and even as his heart seems to melt within him, and we see him speak about his strength being dried up, still he cries out for deliverance. And when we get to verse 21, finally, It's almost as if you can hear 
in this Old Testament psalm, the cry of triumph. You have rescued me. You know, most, it's almost this we could hear, it is finished. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And it's at this point, at the end of this verse, that the, the abrupt transition comes in the psalm. It's not smooth at all. It just ends here. And it's almost like a movie scene where the, the scene fades out of some dire scene and fades in. You know, if you like the Lord of the Rings, Frodo and Sam are dying on Mount Doom, we think, and the camera fades out, and next thing, it fades in, and Frodo is awakening in a much better place. That's the kind of sense we have here, because the remainder of the psalm, which we can't go into in depth, is really a reflection of the triumph, a picture of Christ's resurrection victory. Here is the dawn of a new day. Here is Jesus risen in triumph. No more forsaken, no more in agony. Now he is victor, and he sings a new song. And he calls his brothers and sisters to him and declares to them the greatness of God. And now he builds a congregation set apart to the glory and praise of God. This is Old Testament imagery and language for the resurrection and the triumph of the gospel that Jesus Christ wrought on the cross. And here at last is the awaited answer to verse 1 and that cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The suffering servant was not ultimately forsaken because he was raised from the dead triumphantly. He was not despised ultimately, but his sacrifice was well accepted. And now the joyful news goes out so that even the ends of the earth will be saved to the glory of God and to the reigning of Jesus Christ. And so we read in verse 27, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. And so every tribe and tongue and people and language shall see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Well, what are three brief applications we can draw from this brief overview of this psalm? Number one, Psalm 22 shows us the way of salvation. I hope if you don't hear anything else, you hear this. It shouldn't surprise us that Bethlehem foreshadows Calvary. It shouldn't surprise us that even in the events surrounding the birth of Christ, we feel something of where this narrative is going. It's going to lead to the cross. Jesus Christ came to die for sinners. We cannot contribute in any way to the mighty work that he did for us. Thanks be to God. Instead, Jesus Christ calls us to receive him and to rest completely in the work that he did. Do you understand the gospel? You might know the Christmas story. You might know all the carols we sang. Do you fully grasp and have you entered into the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ came to save us from our sin? Secondly, Psalm 22 shows us the nature of discipleship. We see exhibited in Psalm 22 the way of the cross. And yes, that was a unique way of the cross for Christ, 
that only he could do. He accomplished salvation for us. But there is a secondary sense in which the way of the cross now lies before every Christian. And so no wonder Jesus repeats it six times in the Gospels. Anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. That does not mean that we contribute to our salvation in any way. It is all his doing. We rest completely in Christ. We are saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not by work so that no one can boast. But there is a sense in which we need to follow Jesus in that way of the cross. And it means this. It means that we may lose everything in this life, even life itself. And we heard in the powerful sermon this morning that maybe that martyrdom and that loss of life will come to the United States. We don't know what the future holds. We may lose everything in this life, even life itself, but God himself is our hope and our reward. That is the way of the cross for each of us. And we know that in a number of countries around the world, many believers are, even this week, losing their lives, but their lives are safe in Christ. Now, you and I may not face that ultimate sacrifice in our lifetime, but I can tell you this, we do and we will face many lesser but still very important sacrifices in the pathway of true discipleship to Jesus Christ. And when you read this psalm and when you think about the way of the cross for you, in your path of discipleship, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, if you've come to believe in him, you need to reflect on that, that the way of the cross lies before you as well, and it's not an easy way. Yes, it's a way of ultimate joy, For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. But it is a difficult way. Young people, just think of the choices you face in your young lives, in the face of the ungodly world in which you're being raised. There are difficult choices in going the way of the cross. And you young people are not the only ones. Older folks do have those same things. Or we can say, Christians of any age, there is never an end to the temptations of the world's fleeting pleasures in this life. And the way of the cross is the way of saying no to ungodliness and yes to Jesus Christ above everything else. Or you could say, where is your trust in terms of your security? Where does your ultimate security come from? You don't know what's going to happen to your retirement account. It might disappear somehow. Or what's going to happen with health care? There are lots of things that are uncertain about life on this earth. The only true security we have is where our trust should lie in Jesus Christ. Or think of your suffering. Is it possible to feel abandoned by God? Yes, it's possible for Christians to feel abandoned by God. They aren't, but they might feel that way. Do we know, have we taken it to heart that Jesus was abandoned so that we never will be? He was forsaken, so we know that God will never forsake us. And even in our sin and fallenness, the sin that still so easily clings to us, do we know the joy and the rejoicing that comes from knowing we stand in Jesus Christ alone? You see, in all of these kinds of things, in every step in discipleship, 
We are called to fight the fight of faith in our great and gracious Savior, Jesus Christ. So the way of the cross frees us to live for God and not for sinful self. But finally, our third point of application is that this psalm shows us the way of glory. The cross leads to resurrection, triumph, and glory. And really, we didn't go into it enough at the end of the psalm, but you see this psalm conclude with these tremendous pictures of all the earth, all the prosperous of the earth, eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. You see, the cross ushers in the victory. The cross, in the cross, Jesus triumphed over the principalities and powers. And now, in the church age, we see that victory being declared more and more around the world as the gospel permeates the world and as more and more people come to know Jesus Christ. And one day, those from every nation and tribe and people and language, a great multitude that no one can number, will stand with joy before the throne of God and the Lamb, and they will say, Hallelujah. Hallelujah. This morning when the Hallelujah Choir, when the choir sang the Hallelujah Chorus, I was under the balcony and our, my wife and daughter had gone up to sing, and I was with our three older grandkids, and I thought, maybe some of you saw me sneak over here just so they could see this great choir and just get a sense of the awesomeness of singing the Hallelujah Chorus. And I stood there with my arms around the middle grandson and just thought, even as the Hallelujah was being sung, I thought, in light of what had just been preached, what suffering will the generations to come be called to face for the gospel? It's glorious to hear these words sung, But the sermon was still ringing in my ears and thinking, we have lived in a time of relative ease and rest from persecution that much of the church has faced throughout the past 2,000 years. That may not stay that way. The way of the cross is not something that we can avoid. It comes in every shape and form. It comes in normal, everyday ways. It may come in larger ways in years to come. But aren't we grateful that there is glory beyond the cross? We have the assurance of resurrection triumph. And we know that all will be worth it in the end because Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, God with us. Amen. Father, thank you for this great news. Even though the cross shadows Bethlehem, thank you that... The open tomb stands even beyond that. And Jesus ascended to the right hand of God and pouring out his spirit upon his people, the church, and promising that he will come again in glory. And so we can look with expectation and faith to that great and final day. Help us to so live this week in light of the cross and the resurrection. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.